Bibles, if you would please, to the book of First Thessalonians chapter 4. First Thessalonians chapter 4. I love Easter. I love all the festivities that we have at Easter. I even like that email that Eric sent me of the dog eating the Easter bunny. Um, <laughs> it's a little morbid, but I still like Easter. But I like to think about Easter because it really ought to bring to us a sense of uh, the second coming of Christ. When you think about the hope of the resurrection, our minds are just led immediately to the thoughts that Jesus will come back again, just, as like, just like Brother Dalton just sang. So those thoughts, uh, we go naturally to the resurrection of our bodies, and the resurrection of our bodies does occur at the second coming, when Jesus comes again. So I really like Easter. I like to think about that. I like to think about Christ being raised from the dead. And really the basis for us believing that we shall also rise is the fact that Jesus arose from the grave. Now this evening, I would like for us to think for a few minutes on the subject, Coming Again. And we sing that chorus every Wednesday evening. And I think it's great for us to sing about the second coming of Christ. But I also think it's good for us to preach about it from time to time. And so that's why I want to talk to you about it tonight. I think sometimes about all of the uh, messages, the sermons that are recorded in Scripture. And as I think about those, I think about all the ones that the apostles preach that aren't recorded in the Scriptures. And I wonder sometimes how that the apostles dispersed the different subject matter as they uh, chose their sermons for any particular Sunday morning. I know that uh, I preach uh, 140 sermons a year about that, and I try to scatter out the subject matter somewhat. But I would suspect that the apostles preach far more about the second coming of Christ than we do today. I mean, if you consider the persecution that the apostles were under, then you would think that they would always want to have that in their minds, the hope, the blessed hope that Jesus is coming again. And I can just imagine that that thought was underlying just about every time they preached a message. They were always thinking about the second coming of Christ. So tonight, that's what I want to talk to you about. I want to talk to you, you know, you know, Jesus came out of the tomb. He ascended back into heaven. He promised that he would come again just like Brother Dalton sang. Now, I'd like you to open your Bibles, as I said, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And this is a passage of Scripture that I, I often read at graveside ceremonies, just before the body is committed to the ground. I like to read this particular Scripture because this tells us, gives us the promise that Jesus is coming back and that those bodies will come out of the graves. So let's stand, please, and let's look at this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning at verse number 13. Paul says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them or precede them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you 
uh, just to be here again tonight. We thank you, Lord, that we're able to think about the second coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we know this has all been made possible because there was a resurrection from the dead. I ask you, Lord, that you might speak to our hearts tonight and help us to look for the blessed hope of Jesus coming again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I said just a moment ago that really the the heartbeat of the second coming underlies uh, much of what the apostles spoke about. I don't think that anything demonstrates this any better than the scriptures that we've just read. Because if you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and you look at the beginning of the chapter, Paul is there uh, talking about the Christian walk. And although he's, he's speaking in an attitude of love, yet as he talks to them about this, he's also very stern in his approach. And he tells them how Christians ought to walk, how they ought to live, and he expects fully that they're going to have the right response to his teaching. But then he comes to verse number 13, and then he just abruptly changes the subject matter. And he lets them know that living for Christ, even though that's a very difficult thing for us to do sometimes, there's lots of troubles, lots of heartaches, lots of difficulties that come with living a Christian life. And yet what Paul lets these people know is that this is, this is all worth it. Everything that we do for Christ will be worth it all because Jesus is truly coming again. And so there's hope for troubled times because of the resurrection from the dead. Now, since that day that Jesus ascended into heaven, Christians have always been looking for Christ to come back. And there have been many people who said that he's not coming back. Lots of folks scoff at that, and Peter warned us about that very thing, that people are going to make fun of, and they're going to say, where is the promise of his coming? And they'll continually mock the second coming of Christ. But there's every reason in the world, I think, to believe that Jesus will come again. Tonight, I want to talk to you about five witnesses that we find in the Bible that tell us that Jesus is coming again. I think there's five. Anybody look at your outline? Are there five of these? No, actually, there's four. So I'm not going to talk to you about five. I'm going to talk to you about four. You make up the fifth one and let me know what that one is. So uh, four witnesses we're going to talk about tonight about uh, Jesus coming back. Now, the first witness of the second coming is the prophetic witness of Scripture. You know, it's interesting that we can go back into the Old Testament and before Jesus ever came the first time, the Bible was already telling us that Jesus would come again. Now, I'm not going to go into the Old Testament tonight to show you that, but I do want to look at some things from the New Testament, some uh, prophecies, uh, some statements that are made by some people who tell us that most uh, definitely Jesus is coming again. And so we can look at some very trustworthy writers of the New Testament. They wrote Scripture, and they said Jesus is coming, but not only that he's coming, but that he's coming soon. Now, first of all, I think that we can look at the testimony of Paul. And our text verses, I think, are, are proof to us that Paul did believe that Jesus is coming again. And Christians for centuries have read these very same scriptures that we just read a moment ago, and it's almost like Christians have this whole thing tattooed on their hearts. They believe it. Christians believe Jesus is coming back. And as we look at the Apostle Paul, uh, we might wonder about him. Why is his witness so trustworthy? Why is it that we can trust Paul what he says? Why is he so confident that Jesus is coming back? Well, I think that we could think about the experience that Paul had. Now, he was unlike the other apostles. Uh, Paul never walked with Christ. He was never a part of Christ's earthly ministry. He never personally observed the miracles that Jesus did. 
But Paul was different from the other apostles. Instead, he calls himself one who was born out of due time. He never physically walked with Christ like the others did. Now, there's no evidence in the New Testament, at least, that he ever saw Jesus Christ before, uh, before he met him on the road to Damascus. I think probably that Paul did. He, he certainly knew about Jesus. But whether he saw any of the miracles or, or, or uh, met Jesus personally, the Bible doesn't really tell us before the road to Damascus. But the thing that happened here is that after Jesus was crucified... Probably a year, even up maybe to two years after Jesus was crucified, Paul did meet him on the road to Damascus. We all know that story. He was struck down by the brilliant light of the glory of Jesus Christ. He was able to speak with Christ. And that gave him all the confidence in his heart that he could ever need that Jesus was alive and truly Jesus is coming back. And so the Holy Spirit began to work in Paul's life. And he revealed some things to him about Jesus coming. And in Romans 13, 11, Paul wrote, And that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. Romans thirteen eleven is a statement about the imminent return. In 1 Corinthians 7, verse 29, Paul said, But this I say, brethren, the time is short. And so Paul is giving us a feeling that that we ought to be busy. We need to tidy some things up. We've got to get ready for the coming of the Lord. We've got to take care of some matters that we've let slide by. We've got to talk to some people that we haven't talked to about before. Because he says, be prepared, be ready, because Jesus is coming back. Get everything in order, Paul says, because the Lord will return. So we could say that Paul is a faithful witness about the second coming, and he wrote these scriptures and many more that tell us that Jesus is coming back. Then we could also look at the testimony of Peter. Peter was also a writer of scripture, and he testified that Jesus is coming back. Now, Paul had his unique experience, and Peter had one as well. Peter was one of three disciples that Jesus took up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And Peter was able to get a glimpse of the glory of Jesus Christ. And so Peter became convinced through the, through the witness that he had that Christ's coming was imminent. And so he wrote in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. Now that sounds like urgency, doesn't it? He says, get ready now, be prepared, because he's coming. Now, we think about those words where Peter says to be sober, and what it brings to my mind is uh, something that, a question that we often ask, and, is, and that is, what would you want Jesus to find you doing if he were to come back at this very moment? And do you know if you really believe that Jesus could come back at any moment, that it would change some of the things you do? If you really trusted in that, if you really believe that it could happen right now, that'll keep you from doing things that you otherwise might not do. Just thinking that Jesus could come back any moment. So don't say that you believe he's coming and continue in your sins as if he's not. That's not really proof that you really think about the imminent coming of Christ. Then the third person we could look at is the testimony of James. Now, James was also up on that mountain with Peter. James is the part writer in the New Testament that we kind of think of the down-to-earth writer. He's the one who writes about practical things. He talks about living in this world and proving by the things that we do that we really are the children of God. So he's the practical and ethical writer of the New Testament. But he's no less hopeful. He's no less hopeful that, and expectant that Christ will come. 
Because James wrote in James 5, verse 8, Be ye also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Now that sounds like James had a reason behind his comments. Now he's earthy, he's concerned about how we live in this life, but he's also very heavenly minded, and he tells us to get ready for the second coming. And then surely we couldn't forget about this next witness, and that's the testimony of John. John the Beloved. John the Disciple that Jesus loved. And that's the way John describes himself. It was John who sat closest to Jesus at the Last Supper. John was leaning upon his breast as as he talked with Jesus. It was John who was standing at the foot of the cross when Jesus was crucified, standing right next to Jesus' mother Mary, and Jesus committed the care of his mother into the hands of John. He was the disciple that Jesus loved. Now, Jesus gave him, God gave him a great revelation concerning things that will come. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, he wrote, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. So John says, it's coming. And he says that when Jesus breaks through that eastern sky, that all the events surrounding the second coming of Christ will quickly begin to unfold. When this happens at that very moment, there's not going to be time to straighten things out. No time to take care of matters that we've left undone. Now, in the 22nd chapter of of Revelation, John records, and he said unto me, these sayings are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants things which must shortly be done. Behold, I come quickly. That's Jesus speaking. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. When will Jesus come? I think the Bible shows us it could happen at any moment, at any second, at any day, any month, in any year. Jesus will come. And the scriptures have prophesied that. The prophets have given us the message, the witness that Jesus is coming. So we have the prophetic witness of the scriptures. But now I want to show you next that we also have the powerful witness of the Savior. One of the most enjoyable preaching series that I've done since I've been preaching here is uh, in the Gospel of John. I've really enjoyed studying John's Gospel. Sixteen months we've been studying John, and one of the most blessed scriptures that we have is in John chapter 14. Last month at the uh, memorial service for Brother Frank Tharp, I read these verses from John chapter 14. They're some of my favorite. Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also." Jesus says, I will come again. Now, we notice in that scripture that Jesus didn't tell us exactly when he's coming. He gave gave us no reference to whether the coming was near or far in that particular scripture. But he did tell John something else about it. Because back over there in the book of Revelation again, Jesus gave four direct references to the time of his return. 
The first reference is in Revelation chapter 3. He said, Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. So Jesus says, Because I'm coming, you need to be steadfast in your faith. Don't give up in your faith. Don't listen to the mockers and the scoffers. Don't pay attention to them. Don't let the trials of life get you down. Don't look at the temporary things. He says, Look at the eternal. Because I'm coming again. And really, that's exactly the same message that Jesus spoke in John chapter 14. Let not your heart be troubled. Why? Because he's coming again. There's no reason to be troubled. Now, the second reference that Jesus makes in Revelation to the imminent return is in chapter 22, verse number 7. He said, Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Now, that statement relates to our obedience concerning the coming of Christ. He's coming soon, so we've got to get busy and we've got to work. And you know, Jesus set the example for us. He said in John chapter 9, verse 4, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. And he's referencing his second coming. Now, there's a great old hymn that says, O land of rest for thee I sigh, when will the moment come when I shall lay my armor by and dwell in peace at home? We'll work till Jesus comes. We'll work till Jesus comes. We'll work till Jesus comes and we'll be gathered home. Now, in that command for us to work, there's also a promise that goes with it. And the promise is the third statement that Jesus makes in Revelation about the imminent return. In the 22nd chapter, verse number 12, he speaks of a reward that goes with this. He says, and behold, I come quickly and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. Now, there are lots of people that get saved and they're taught this way. Well, now that I'm saved, nothing else matters. I don't have to worry about anything else. I'm going to heaven. That's all that counts. That's all I need to be worried about. Now, unfortunately, folks, that's the conclusion for those who who teach that salvation doesn't really change you. Now, there's some people who who, uh, like to count converts in salvation. They like to count anybody who says that I believe, but the people have never really repented. Repentance means a change, and if there is no change and there's no repentance for salvation, then you're not likely to see a change. If people are not taught that they need to repent, then it's not likely that they're ever going to repent and they're ever going to change the way that they live. Now, the Bible teaches us that even though we're saved without our works, works have nothing at all to do with it. We know that very well, but we are saved to produce works. We're saved to do something, and so it certainly does matter how you live. There's a reward coming. And I don't know about you, but I want to get in on some of the rewards that are coming. Now, there are many people who teach that everybody who receives Christ as Savior, that they will automatically be in the bride of Christ. I don't actually believe that. I don't believe that every saved person will be in the bride of Christ. I believe those in the bride are going to be those who are faithful servants in in the Lord's church. Now, everybody that believes in Christ is saved, but I think that the bride is made up only of those who are faithful members of the Lord's New Testament church. And that's why I want to be a part of the work that we do here. Now, there's one last reference that Jesus makes to his imminent return, and these happen to be the very last words that Jesus spoke in the Bible. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 20, He which testifieth these things saith, and here are Jesus' words, Surely I come quickly. 
Amen, John says. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Now that tells us that Christians need to be ready. You, you need to be ready enough that you can reply exactly as John did when Jesus says, I'm coming quickly, that you can say, even so, come Lord Jesus. Now, do you remember when I was preaching before and I told you about that, that um, saying that the disciples used when they greeted one another? That they didn't say hello and they didn't say how are you. They said Maranatha. They didn't say how's the weather. They said Maranatha. And that word means our Lord comes. And they were so expectant that Jesus would come that every time they met another brother, sister in Christ, they said Maranatha, brother. Maranatha, sister. Our Lord comes. Now the Bible tells us that with the, with the Lord, one day is a thousand years. You know what that means? It means it's only been about two days since Jesus was last here. One day is, is a thousand years. Jesus says, surely I come quickly. And wouldn't you expect that those would be the last words that Jesus would say to man? I'm coming. I'm coming quickly. You watch for me. So we have the prophetic witness of scriptures and the powerful witness of the Savior about the second coming. Now let's talk about the third witness. We have the personal witness of the saints. Now the scripture says in Romans 8 verse 16, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Now, the Holy Spirit that abides in every person who's a believer in Christ has a witness within him. The Holy Spirit is the witness that we're God's children, and that very same witness is what provides us with the hope of the second coming. In our text verses, Paul said in verse 17, Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now, the very proof that you're a child of God is that you believe that promise. You have that hope. You believe that promise that proves that you're a child of God. Now, every born-again believer has a hope that's in him. Let me talk about the hope that we have in Christ's coming. First of all, we have an indwelling hope. One of my favorite scriptures is a statement that Paul makes in Colossians 1 verse 27. He says, To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope, listen, the hope of glory. Peter said, the hope that is in you. The second coming is referred to by Paul as being the blessed hope. In Titus 2.13, he said, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so the absence of that hope within a Christian, the refusal, or a person who says he's a Christian, the refusal to believe that Jesus is coming again, you know what that is? That's evidence that that person isn't saved. If you don't believe that Christ has come again, if you don't trust that, that means you're not saved. One of the questions that we have in our new member interview for people who come and want to join our church when we sit down and talk to them about our common beliefs, we ask them this question, do you believe in the second coming? And if a person says, well, no, I don't believe in the second coming of Jesus, then that's all the evidence that we need that they don't have the Holy Spirit in them. And that's because the Holy Spirit witnesses with us that Jesus is coming back. So no testimony of that means you don't have an indwelling hope. Then secondly, we have a living hope. Paul calls it, or rather Peter calls it, a lively hope, a living hope. Now, why do we have a living hope? 
Well, listen to the scripture that he wrote in 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So why do we have the living hope? Well, you just heard it in the sermon today. It's because we go to that tomb and we find out that it's empty. Jesus is not there. And so we have a living hope because of his resurrection. Our hope is anchored solidly in the resurrection of Christ. Now, you know what that does to you? It keeps you from falling victim to the pessimism of the world. When the world says, he's not coming back. And when you look at the time frames, and has it been a long time since Jesus made that promise? Well, it sure has, hasn't it? It's been 2,000 years since he made the promise. Do you think that it's any less true? That he's not coming? Absolutely not. We trust it just like he's going to come, as I said, imminently. It could be today, tomorrow. It doesn't matter. We trust it implicitly because we have the hope in us. Because Jesus lives, we know that we're also going to live. And so we have the hope of the resurrection. Then also we have an unfailing hope. I mentioned just a moment ago that our hope is anchored. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. He says in Hebrews 6 verse 19, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. You know, I love that reference to the veil. Oh, you know that I love studying the tabernacle and the temple. We spent months and months talking about that. And the veil that he references here is that veil that hung between the holy of holies and the holy place in the temple and the tabernacle. And that veil actually represented the flesh of Jesus Christ. And as I've been preaching over the past few weeks, because the flesh of Christ veiled his glory, we aren't able to see that. But when Jesus went to the cross and when he died there, the veil was torn in two. The way was opened up to come into the presence of God. And so now we'll be able to see the glory of God. And how is that possible? Because the Bible says our hope is anchored in Christ because he took his own blood and he sprinkled that on the mercy seat in heaven. How was it sprinkled? Jesus arose from the dead. That's how it got there. I mean, here are the proofs that we're talking about. We have the hope because Jesus arose and could take that blood and go right into the presence of God and present it to him. Hebrews 9 verse 12 says, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. So friends, when you read the word of God and you see here, the Bible says it's eternal. Redemption is eternal then you know for sure this can't fail. We have an unfailing hope in the promise of the second coming because there is eternal blood that was shed for us. It was taken into the presence of God. Now, do you know that every month, every month on the first Sunday of the month, we actually recognize this very thing? When we take the Lord's Supper, we're recognizing this. You remember what Paul said? He said, for as often as ye... Eat this bread and drink this cup. Ye do show forth the Lord's death till he come. You show forth the Lord's death till he comes. Now, do you see how that wraps together? The heartbeat of the second coming is present in the actions of every believer. But then we still have another witness. There's the prophetic witness of Scripture. We have the powerful witness of the Savior, the personal witness of the saints. And now finally, let's talk about the plentiful witness of the signs. 
Now, there's certainly a lot of confusion when you start talking about signs of the second coming. There's some who believe that, oh, there's certain things that have to be fulfilled. Unless you see this certain thing happening, then Christ can't come back. And when you do see a certain thing happen, then you can be sure that his coming is right around the corner. Lots of confusion about signs. Now, there's been a lot of date setting attached to signs. For instance, when Israel became a state once again in 1947, people said, well, that means that Christ has to come back very soon. And so many people said, well, it must be before the end of the second millennium. And you know what happened? We're all familiar with it. People started heading for the hills. On December 31st, 1999, people started going to the hills because they expected that that Christ was going to come back. There's going to be a cataclysmic end of the world. And so they just waited for that clock to turn to January 1st, 2000. But what happened? Nothing. And you know why? Because we can't tie the coming of Christ to any one particular sign that we've seen. seen. Now, the scriptures do tell us that we're living in the last days. Don't be confused about what that means. The last days are the times that stretch all the way from the resurrection of Christ to the time that Jesus comes in the rapture. The last days are the entire church age. But during that church age, the Bible tells us that Jesus will come back and this whole age is characterized by certain signs. So we know that we're living in those last days because we see these certain signs. Let me give you a few of those. First of all, we see worldwide apostasy. Apostasy means falling away. It means to abandon the truth. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse number 1, Paul said, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter time some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Well, all over the world we see this happening. There's a great falling away. Atheism is growing. Liberalism is growing. And where there seems to be Christianity, when it looks like there's Christianity we find the rejection of orthodox Christian beliefs. You look at the doctrines of Mormons, look at the Jehovah Witnesses, look at all the cults, and they reject the deity of Christ. It looks like, and they call themselves Christians, but they have nothing at all to do with Christianity. That's a great apostasy. And then, among those who who are, are orthodox, that say that they're orthodox, what do we have? We have the infiltration of the charismatic movement. And that's gaining a foothold in all different sects of Christianity. And most of the fastest growing uh, Christian sects in the world are those that are charismatic. That's what's happening in the third world countries. You remember when Brother Mike Craiglow was here last month. He was telling me about how the charismatic movement has begun to infiltrate his min- the ministries there in Brazil. And he told me that the Southern Baptists have begun to embrace the charismatic movement. And the reason that they're doing that is because they want to build up their numbers. And if that's what does it, then we'll reject the truth in order to do it. And so they've rejected our Baptist teaching in order to bring people into their organization. That's what's called apostasy. But then we can go a step further than that because we can see among our Baptist people today that there are many Baptists that are antagonistic against our historic Baptist beliefs. And they want to rewrite our entire history and and make us try to believe that the belief in the the doctrines of grace and these wonderful teachings of of, of the Bible that we've been preaching right here at Berean, they're trying to tell us that Baptists never believed that. Well, that's as false as it can be. People are rejecting the truth of what our Baptist forefathers have always taught and believed. 
You know what it is? That's part of the apostasy. Now, whenever the teaching comes around and it gains a foothold, that, that uh, uh, this particular type of preaching, when it gains a foothold, it's always turned into universalism. Do you know that's the history of this? Those who reject doctrines of grace always turn eventually to universalism. Why is that so? Because when you reject the teaching of particular redemption and put in its place universal atonement, then the only natural conclusion is universal salvation. That's where it has to lead. That's a sign of the last days. When Baptists begin to reject our heritage, then you know we're living in apostasy. Now, the second thing is worldwide abominations. 2 Timothy uh, 3, verse number 13. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Is the world getting worse and worse? Anybody want to testify to that? You know, years ago, there was what was called the post-millenary view. This was back in the end of the 19th century. And the post-millenary view said that the world will get better and better until Jesus comes. Now, the people who believe that were living in the late 19th century. The Industrial Revolution revolution was was in full swing, and they started looking at how material things are getting better for people, and so they came to the conclusion, well, the world's getting better, and so we must believe then that the world will actually get better before Jesus comes again. But you know what happened? World War I came, and then World War II, Korean War, Vietnam War, and on and on and on, wars all over the world. And now today, to find a post-millenarian, that's harder to find than hen's teeth. They just don't hardly exist. Now, if you look at the world today, right here in civilized America, what do you have to do? Keep your doors locked at night. Do you remember a time when you didn't have to do that? Hadn't been too long ago, has it? You could trust people. You didn't have to lock your doors at night. Everything was fine. Drive down the road. What do you have to have? An armored car. Because if you don't, you might get shot in a drive-by shooting. It's getting worse. Go into San Francisco, and what do you see there? Well, if you don't cover your eyes, you might see a gay parade. You might see naked people running up and down the street. Watch out for your kids. You know why? Because right in your neighborhood, there are pedophiles that live there. Take your kids to the doctor every now and then. Why? Not because they're sick. But you need to take them for drug testing. You know why? Because our schools have become the homeland of the uh, Colombian drug cartel. Watch the disrespect that children have for their parents and for anyone in authority. And tell me the world's not getting worse. And then watch those very same parents cuddle and coo with those brats that they have. Check your legislators. Won't be long. We've seen it. Laws against spanking. Divorce rates are up. People live together without marriage. I mean, just like, a, like a, a bunch of hound dogs in heat. And it just keeps getting worse and worse. It's a sign of the last days. And then watch out for this. A third thing. Worldwide advances. Materialism. That's what I'm talking about. Look at the world today. That's the thing today. I mean, even, even Christian people are caught up in this very thing. The bank account. That's what we've got to look at. Recreation. Uh, The bank account's the king and recreation is our queen. Live it up. Be consumed with ourselves. And every advance in in science that we see today is a a nail in the coffin of godliness because now people think that we can act like God. We can kill unborn babies. We can euthanize the helpless. 
Everybody's all in favor of embryonic stem cell research. And what do we have? Well, people are lab rats today. Instead of being created in the image of God, we're just no bit higher than an animal. I have to tell you this. Yesterday, I had to uh, make a trip to San Francisco. And the purpose of this trip, I was going down there with Nathan uh, to, the, to the San Francisco Zoo. And his assignment for his class, his anthropology class, was to go and watch the monkeys. And there were four different groups of monkeys that he had to look at and make notes about which ones have their tails that have become shorter, which ones no longer have tails, which ones have a high brow, and which ones have a low brow. And you know what it's all leading to? Watch the monkeys and see where we came from. This is apostasy, folks. I mean, we're experimenting with people, and we think we're, we're, we're nothing more than a bunch of animals. That's where all that leads to. Man is just an animal. God never said that a man is an animal. You know, the scientists long ago gave us our, our genetic, or their, what do you call them, the genus and the species for, for humans. You know where it all comes from? Why do they do that? Because we're just animals. That's all we are. And folks, when you teach people that they're animals, they're going to act like animals. That's exactly where it comes from. Now, I like this quote from the university president. He said, freshmen bring a little knowledge into the university. Seniors take nothing out. And yet knowledge accumulates. And what knowledge is he talking about? He's speaking of the foolishness and wickedness of this world that thinks that it's smart, that thinks that it's gaining knowledge, and they have none at all. That's the sign of the times. And then we also have this. We have worldwide antagonism. There's antagonism man to man, nation to nation, man against God. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24... And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled. For all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. For nations shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in divers places. And these are the beginning of sorrows. Do you remember that song that the songwriter wrote? He said, signs of the times are everywhere. And there's a brand new feeling in the air. Keep your eyes upon the eastern skies. Lift up your heads. Redemption draweth nigh. And do you know that's exactly what Jesus said? In Luke chapter 21, verse 28. And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. Now, friends, these are the witnesses that Jesus is coming back. His coming is imminent. It could happen at any moment. Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction come upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Now, folks, that's what it's going to look like for those who don't believe in Christ. He'll come suddenly. He catches people unaware. And when he comes, there will be destruction. That means that those who are caught in such a situation will be destined for the eternal fires of hell. But that's not the way it is for believers. It's different for us. Because Paul goes on in the next verse and he says, But ye, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all children of the light and children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. Let me finish the message tonight. I want to read you uh, this comment, this little story. I'll just read it to you. It says, 
there was a father who had to leave his home and go on a long journey. Just before he left, his three-year-old son asked him, Daddy, when will you be coming back? The father knew that he would not return until the end of September and that it would be useless to talk about seasons to his little boy for he would not know the difference between them. So he said, when you see the leaves on the trees turning red and brown and beginning to fall on the ground, then you can be sure that daddy is coming very soon. The next day, the father left home. During the summer months, the boy would go for walks with his nurse and talk about his absent daddy. The weeks went by. September came and slowly the leaves began to change, although the boy did not recognize it. Then one night, there was a strong windstorm and leaves came down, filling the sidewalks and gutters. The next morning, when the little fellow went out, he saw them. Letting go of his nurse's hand, he went among the leaves, kicking them with his shoes and shouting, Hurrah! Daddy's coming soon. Likewise, all over the world, there's an expectation. The leaves are turning brown and are beginning to fall. Jesus said, when you see these things, be gloomy. No, chins up, lift up your heads. The great future of every child of God may be dawning, for the coming of the Lord is drawing near. Those are true witnesses. The scriptures, the Savior, the saints, and the signs And the scripture says, lift up your head, your redemption draweth nigh. Jesus is coming soon. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the great promises that we have in the word of God. There's no need for us to fear. We don't need to worry. We don't need to lose heart because you tell us that you're coming again. Help us to be people who recognize that. May we put all of our trust, all of our hope, all confidence in you. And may we look forward to the blessed hope, the second coming of Jesus Christ. Speak to our hearts tonight, Lord, in this time of invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.